whole new year of I Decided podcasts. It's now 2023 and we've had a lot of exciting conversations over this last 12 months and I really appreciate all the people that have been involved in conversations. Just to give you a bit of an update, the whole reason for these podcasts is to help people think above average, to think that their life could achieve something pretty special. I started these podcasts and didn't know where they would lead. But over the last 12 months, I've just had the opportunity to interview some truly amazing people. I'm so thankful for their time and I'm thankful for their input. I'm really excited about what you'll learn and and how you'll grow from the time that we spend talking together. And I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of the podcasts that we did through 2022. Now into 2023, we've got some truly amazing people to speak to. And I hope that you continue to enjoy And I hope you take on the challenge to think that your life can make a difference if you just simply take the time to plan a life you want to live in. Now, let me introduce you to some friends of mine, some people that I've had the opportunity to be able to coach, some long-term friends that I've able to live my life with, some people that I've met through business and networking groups, and some other people that are just dynamic in what it is that they're doing in business and community. I hope you enjoy today's interview and I hope you take away from it a challenge to live your life differently and find your full potential. Today I would like to introduce you to a very close friend of mine and a truly amazing person. He typifies everything these I Decided podcasts are about. Alan Clements started his working life as an electrical fitter mechanic He then joined the Air Force in 1985 as a trainee pilot, subsequently served in the Royal Australian Air Force for over 35 years, reaching the rank of Air Vice Marshal. After his initial training in 1985 and tours as a transport pilot and basic flying instructor, he went on to several tours as a FA-18 pilot instructor and squadron executive. His operational commands included 77 FA-18 Fighter Squadron and number 78 Wing, responsible for lead-in fighter training and fast jet ground crew training. Throughout his career, he undertook multiple roles, future capacity requirement developments, Chief of Staff of Air Combat Group, Director of Defence Aviation and Air Force Safety. His senior command appointments included Director General for the Force Structure Review, Commander Australian Defence Force Academy, Defence Attaché to the United States of America, and Deputy Commander of the COVID Task Force. Leaving full-time Air Force in 2020, Alan started a company, HARD Consultants, aimed at providing national security and strategic advantage to various companies, institutions and universities. He subsequently joined L3 Harris in May of 2021 and took over as Managing Director L3 Harris Technologies Australia in July 2021. Alan was awarded a Conspicuous Service Cross in the 2016 Queen's Birthday Honours List for his leadership of the Australian Defence Force Academy and was made a member of the Order of Australia in 2021 Queen's Birthday Honours. He remains a member of the Air Force Reserves and is actively involved in flying vintage warbirds and competition aerobatics. He's married to Helene, and together they have two beautiful daughters. Well, welcome, Alan. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time and and joining our uh, BOP I Decided series. This is just an opportunity where I get to 
have a conversation with some friends that I've had over the years or some uh, people who have done significant things in their life and some have done sensational things in their life. But they've made at one point uh, that decision that said, I decided I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to move from ordinary to to try and explore a little bit of something that's extraordinary and really take a hold of all opportunities ahead of me. So, welcome. Well, as always, it's great to spend time with you, Ian. Uh, It's always a pleasurable experience and I go away learning a lot every time I come to see you. Um, And thank you for the opportunity when you look back through your own life you don't necessarily see it in a, in the same fashion that other people do so for me um, just being able to be here and to chat with you about it and, and maybe talk about some of the experiences i've had it's going to be enjoyable i'm looking forward to it so alan i just want to start with just a bit of the alan clement story mm-hmm. so where you began where you were born some of the early influences on your life and so i'm a north queenslander I'm i'll forgive you for that <laughs> <laughs> so you know when the uh, the rugby comes around every year. It's an interesting <laughs> conversation in most people's houses when I live down south. Um, but I was born in Townsville, uh, raised in Townsville. My, my mother is actually English, born in Yorkshire, and my mm-hmm. dad is an Australian, uh, born here. So I am one of those first-generation Australians, uh, so to speak. Uh, but Townsville, uh, working-class town. Dad uh, was a working-class man. He was a builder, carpenter. Uh, had his own business for a long period of time and and so you know I, I grew up working my weekends and and my holidays with dad as a builder trying to raise a bit of money that I could have or actually figuring out that that's not the job I actually wanted to do uh, he worked way too hard and you know he was one of those people that went to work at uh, seven in the morning and got home at seven at night and running his own business and uh, I think that work ethic was one of the first influences in, in my life that I watching my dad work very hard and, and be quite successful and and hearing people talk about him uh, throughout my life as the quality person and builder that he was, uh, that has an influence over the type of, you realise that to be respected and to be uh, that good at what you do, you've got to be dedicated and motivated mm. to do it. Mm. So I think that's a very early influence in my life. My mum uh, was... Not quite as influential, I would say, but my mum was very, it was actually quite sick. She, in 1971, had a brain hemorrhage and uh, since 1971 has only got one carotid artery that feeds the brain. That had a large influence over her nature and, and the way that she lived. And then she had a second one later on in life as well. But that, that did influence our life as, as, as kids. But certainly seeing her survive that and work through the, you know, what she needed to do to get through and raise a family. Again, was an influence over us, but probably not quite as strong as my dad. But I did realise early on that uh, I wasn't somebody for manual labour uh, like my father was doing. That was something I, I uh, which did influence me later on when I was going through school and and then and leaving and, and first my first job selection. So tell me about your first career choice. Where did you start? It wasn't really a choice for me in, in that end. It was, it was one of those things that happened. I was going through high school and mainly focused on sport, uh, not very much on the academics. And people would say to you that I wasn't very academic at all. And that meant 
some of my passions, uh, I was pursuing them like sport and actually started to become a little interested in flying uh, when I was in my early teens. But that interest, I didn't realize the connection with academics and doing well at academics was actually going to solve that problem for me later on. So when I left, when I was going through high school, I was actually said, oh, look, I want to be a pilot when I leave school. And the guidance counselor and the teachers just looked at me and said, mm, not going to happen. You know, you're not <laughs> smart enough to be a pilot. That's not going to happen for you. So I believed them and, and I didn't do the right subjects. And I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll somehow figure a way of learning to fly another way. So when I left high school, I was accepted to go to, to university. I was actually going to become a teacher and then realized, well, if I want to fly, I can't go to university because I don't get any money. And yeah. so I need to get a, I need to get a job. And so I started applying for apprenticeships, but having worked with my father as a builder, dad said, you, you don't want to do this. You need to be an electrician. That's okay. what you should do. So that's where the idea of becoming an electrician really came about. And so I was, became a, an electrical fitter mechanic with the Queensland Electricity Generating Board at that time. So not really a choice in terms of what it was, but I wanted money so that I could continue to fly the passion that I had at that time. And then I was really, at the same time, was working through, I was doing the Air Force Cadets while I was going through and was lucky enough to win a flying scholarship where they taught me to fly for free up to solo. So I, I could actually fly on my own. Actually, I could fly on my own before I could drive a car on my own. Wow. <laughs> Which was, I, I thought it was pretty cool at the time. Yeah. But, uh, but I then... Uh, through that exposure into the flying environment started to meet professional pilots, people that were both civilian professionals and military professionals and realized that I wasn't as dumb as I had been told yes. um, or another way of saying they weren't as smart as what I thought they were, but obviously they were very dedicated and motivated to what they're doing, very good at what they're doing. And I felt I, I could, I actually think I can do this. And so while I was doing my apprenticeship, I made, I made a decision at a point that I'm, I am going to try. I'm going to apply to the Air Force to become a pilot. But to do that, I had to go back and do night school at the time at the TAFE College. And I had to go and do senior maths and senior physics uh, so that I could meet the requisite required, required academics to join the military as a mm. pilot. So while I was working through my apprenticeship, which was a four-year apprenticeship, I studied at night school in, in my fourth year uh, at the time and was lucky enough then to apply to the Air Force and get in. So very fortunate. So when you first kind of had that glimpse, that idea about, hey, I could actually, I could actually join the Air Force. I could, I could do something special. You know, the mm. trade's fine and, and mm. it's been interesting, but really there's a step above that I'm quite interested in. Mm. Was there someone in particular that you shared that, that thought, that idea with, who was able to just grow that and and help you mature that, develop that idea a bit further? At, at the time, there were probably a, a couple of groups of people that I would say that that happened to. They were, they were my friends mm -hmm. and who were through the Air Force cadets that I'd known, but also family, lifelong family friends at the same time. They were, they were the same group. Shared it with them and, and they were very supportive they they actually were encouraging me to be able to do that and then when i was actually learning to fly i did quite well and and i i went solo in an airplane 
in almost a minimum of about seven hours of dual flying before I went solo. And the average at the time was about 10 to 12 hours of what people were doing. So my instructors said, gave me, gave me encouragement as well. From a parent's perspective, th their encouragement was probably a little different. And as they've always said, once you finally set your mind to something, Alan, you will be able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but you just haven't set your mind to anything just yet. And I think yeah. my father used to word it a little bit more negatively and say, Alan, you've got brand new brains. You, you just need to learn to use them. <laughs> <laughs> you need to exercise them. <laughs> That's right. So I think there was that, that encouragement and, and speaking to them about wanting to do it and actually putting it out. Because a lot of time people won't put out there with that fear of failure. And I think at that point, the fear of failure had gone because I, I felt like I'd already failed by not doing the right thing when I was at high school and, yeah. and not working on the academics. Yeah. So the fear of failure had gone out. I put it out there that this is what I was going to do and I was going to do it. And at the time, I, my wife now, yeah. and uh, wife of 35 years, and she was extremely encouraging and saying, you have to do this. You, you can't go through life ultimately saying at a point in the future that you didn't even take the chance. Mm. You didn't have a go at it. You didn't decide that's what you wanted to do and, and chase it with everything that you had. So there was a, a variety of, I think, of people and, and groups that did it. But I'd, close friends and Helene were probably the two most that pushed me and said, go for it and, and to give you that encouragement. Did you have any naysayers? Yeah, yeah, lots of naysayers. Yeah. Absolutely, because... A lot of people look at that career as an Air Force pilot and they put it up pretty high in the status of things. I've always said that it's something that I do, it's not who I am. I think at that time, people didn't relate the two to mm. me uh, as somebody because, frankly, I hadn't done well at high school. Mm. You know, I'd done okay. I, I, I think I got honours in my electrical apprenticeship. I mm. think you were, if you got honours each of your... TAFE college period, she got a month taken off or a couple of weeks taken off your apprenticeship. So I, I, that happened to me. So I did, I did okay, but nobody had seen me as that that next level up. So yeah. there was a, and I could still remember one of my school teachers. Sometime later, I'd been back visiting my mum and dad and I walked into a shop and uh, my school teacher was there. And out of respect for him, I won't say who it was, but as he was his name, but he said, Oh, Mr. Clements, what are you doing now? I said, Oh, Mr. You know, I'm a, I'm a pilot in the Air Force now. And he just looked at me and went, well, they must be desperate. <laughs> real encouragement. <laughs> real encouragement, even, even then, after yeah. I'd actually achieved it. But there were certainly people like that, that yeah. were naysayers. And, and I think early on, and that's why through my early teens, I'd listened to them about my abilities. And that's why I didn't achieve. Yeah. Once I'd stopped listening to them and actually started to believe that I can do this. I, there is an opportunity for me to do it. I just need to dedicate myself mm. to it. Mm. Then the success started to come. Yeah. It's so critical to listen to the right voices. And absolutely. that is what we choose. You know, yeah, we, we can actually screen out the negative and, and yeah. really just take on the positive and yeah. find the people who believe in us. Yes. And, and they're the best ones that we, we move towards because transformation happens in proximity. Yes. And if we want to be transformed by something, we've got to be close to it. So therefore we've got to be close to the right people and then life can be influenced in the right direction. Yeah. All right. So we've started a, a career now. Yeah. And uh, where was your first appointment in the, in the Air Force? 
So when I first joined to under, and under training, I went to Melbourne. So our basic flying training was conducted at Melbourne. And then once you'd finished your basic flying training and officer training, you were, we went to Perth. And Perth was where all the advanced flying training occurred. So I joined, I still remember the date, 20th of August, 1985, was when I joined the Air Force. Then spent pretty much from that day through to around the Easter time in 86 in Point Cook. And then from around Easter time, we moved to Perth and did the advanced training. And I graduated uh, the 11th of December in 1986 when I graduated. So that... Uh, you know, almost 18 months of, of work uh, was a very intense period of time. Effectively for me, it was a six-day week. You were, you know, you'd do the flying and the study through the five days. Then on the weekend, because you were living on base and you had your own room and so all your washing, your ironing, getting your uniforms ready, doing all those things, uh, having a little bit of social time as much yeah. as you can. That was normally a Friday night and, and maybe a Saturday night where you went out. But then you pretty much half a Saturday and half a Sunday you were, you'd focused on either domestics or preparing yourself for the next week for that. So that was the, the first assignments. And through that, there I, I really learnt a real critical lesson there, I think, about when you're in a group of people and you're all focused on the same outcome, there is a level of competitiveness mm-hmm. that actually occurs in there. And sometimes competitiveness can actually go wrong in in the way that people portray how they're going. Mm. And, and for example, I always positioned myself, you know, not doing very well. I was that, uh, you know, I was, I, was, I was doing okay, but boy, they're doing really well. You know, I, I didn't think I was failing, but I didn't think I was doing as well as everybody else. And then all of a sudden, out of the 35 people that started our course, only 17 graduated. And I end up in the 17, you know, not in the 18 that actually left, but... Out of the 18 people that left, there was probably at least half of them I always thought were doing better than I was doing on the course. So I realized, mm. you know, don't don't rely on that sort of thing. Mm. It's about you. It's about how you're focused mm. on what you're doing mm. and how you're performing mm. and not to try and measure yourself against someone else out there. Yeah, the, the only comparison we should, we should ever make is are we closest to the best version of ourselves? Yes. Mm. And if we way. do that, we're able to move forward. Yeah. And, and not be comparing against capacity in other people that just may not be the same capacity that we have all. And, and even, they if have. They, even if they are doing a better job than what you're doing, or they're a better pilot, or yeah. they're a better electrician, or they're better at what they do, that doesn't make them necessarily a better person. It doesn't make them necessarily better than you as a, as a human. It, and it doesn't make them worse, but mm. it's something that you've got to stop I stop grading myself against them. And, and I have to say, though, that waxes and wanes throughout your life. It's yeah. not something that, you know, from that point on, it was all, all great. Yeah. It was certainly yeah. something that I, throughout my career, I, I did struggle with at times where I, I did weigh myself against other people. And, and in ultimately where I ended up, which was flying F-18s, that's a competitive mm. job mm. because you go out every day and you're flying your aeroplane against someone else, and the winner is somebody that shoots the other person. So you, you know, in if you think take it to the extreme and you put it into combat, you don't come home and mm. the other person does. So it does be a case. So you do end up comparing yourself against others very yeah. regularly. 
there's no second places in those arenas. No, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. And so I always found when I was confident in what I was doing and I was well prepared, my performance was always significantly better than, you know, if, if I hadn't have focused as hard or wasn't as disciplined about my preparation mm. or had a doubt, you know, and you know, when you look around the squadrons, you know, some of those people are excellent at what they do and you know you're going up to have a fight against them that day it's like Mm. oh this is going to be a tough one so you've got to you know there were times where i'd come out with a draw and i'm going yay i've won (laughs) we're both alive (laughs) alive at the moment yeah Yeah, that sort of thing so but that was you know going through that pilot training not measuring yourself against someone Mm. was probably one of the big lessons that i learned Mm. because every time you did that you you either overrated them or overrated yourself Mm. You shouldn't do that. Mm. There, there are a lot of different influences that can happen in mm. a, this current moment and circumstances, and they're the things you're dealing with in, yeah. in the theatre of war, so in the theatre of, of flying. And so, so when I graduated yes. off, off pilot course, I, I, I sort of half-jokingly stated I did so well on pilot course that they didn't send me to fighters first up. They sent me to transport aeroplanes, and I, I don't mean that by any disrespect to people flying transport aeroplanes, but... The top of your course goes to fighters. You know, if you're not you're not the top of your course, then you don't go to fighters. So I obviously wasn't at the top of my course when I when I graduated. But we also uh, gradu- I graduated at the time when we were in transition between Mirages and F-18s. So we stopped in Mirages. We were just starting in F-18s, and we didn't have a lot. And some people off some courses were going. Our course didn't have anybody go. The next course had some people go. The following course didn't. So it was, you know, maybe I might have got there off pilot's course, but uh, I didn't. And I think in the end, that was a good thing. I, I think if I'd have gone off my pilot course direct into to fighters, I may not have passed. I, I went to fly an airplane called the HS-748 down in East Sale in Victoria. And that was a navigator trainer. And it was a crude environment. And a crude environment for me was really good. I found working with a team... I really enjoyed working with the team and learned a lot and very quickly got given, got a lot of experience very quickly and got a captaincy very early. Uh, within my first year of pilot course, I had a captaincy on the aeroplane, which meant I could take that aeroplane, you know, as you know, a one-year captain. I was one-year pilot and I was taking it to New Zealand and Asia and all over different places on, on, with the crew and mm-hmm. in charge of the crew. So I gained a lot of experience very, very quickly. And a lot of confidence out of out of being able to work with people and work in a team and that's in, in in that environment, which I think really then helped mature me as a pilot and as an officer within the military. Whereas if I'd have gone direct into fighters, I, I'm not sure I would have had that that exposure and that experience. I think you know, whatever plan God had for me at that point was probably the right one. Even though I didn't like it at the time, it was probably the right one. Yeah. Quite often we don't know the pathway that we take is going to teach us some valuable lessons. We're just on that pathway. Yeah. And we, we learn as we go and we learn as we grow. And I, and I think part of it too is I always had a... I still had the passion. I wanted to fly fighters. And that's what I told people. Again, spoke out about it. I wasn't afraid to speak out about it. It was going to be... It was a tough road to get there. But I... Trying to figure the plan on how to get there was really hard. I, but I knew I had that idea. So when I was looking at options, when I was looking at things, I was always looking at them w- with the objective of getting into flying fighters. Mm. I couldn't plot it out 
But when I was making the decision, I was going, is it going to impact me going to there in a positive way or a negative way? Um, or neutral, you know, I, I would make that the, the decision with that in, in the back of my mind all the time. Yeah, I was pretty sure it's Zig Ziglar who said, every decision we make is either moving us closer to or taking us further away yeah. from the goals that we have. So our, our goal and our, our conduct must be parallel and congruent towards the direction and the destination we want to find ourselves in. Yeah. So for you, that was fighter pilots. So yeah. when did the opportunity met preparation and you had your chance to so be a fighter pilot? So it was a, it's a little bit, a little even further down track than what I'd hoped. Again, it was, I went from flying HS7 for 8s, which was doing navigator training and VIP transport. I then was selected to become a flying instructor. I got sent back to basic flying instructor, so not the advanced, so went back to what we had CT4s at the time. So I was flying instructor training at Point Cook. Again, told my commanding officer at the time when I first arrived at the squadron, which was probably a little brave of me at the time to say, yeah, I'm not happy being here because I want to go and fly fighters, but you're going to get the best out of me. Okay. I, I will, I'm going to work my butt off. I'm going to be the best guy that you've got here because that means you can't say no to me going to... <laughs> go to fighters and then I was very lucky I got selected to do the low-level aerobatic displays in the CD4 while I was there so I got to go to different air shows and things around which was pretty enjoyable. Helene and I were married by that time and she even got to go away with me occasionally on the airplanes. I wrote I wrote to the commanding officer of one of the, the fighter training squadrons and said hey I'm an instructor I hear you're looking for instructors I'd love to come and work for you and he wrote back to me and said thanks very much for your letter but you know <laughs> Probably not at the moment, <laughs> that sort of things. And then I just happened to come back from a trip. I'd been away and I got my name called over the PA and go down to the, come and see the CO in his office. So I walked down there and he said, I've just heard there's some opportunities to go across and become an instructor over on Mackey's again. And, and if you're over there, then the opportunity to go to fighters might come up. And I said, I'll take I'm it. In. <laughs> I'm in, put my name in the ring. And uh, so I went home and Helene and I had planned some, a whole lot, we'd planned a few days off because I'd been away and we hadn't had so much time together. And, and she'd, uh, she'd just be just pregnant with our, with our first child at that time and right. we head away. And I got this phone call. It was on uh, Thursday night and it was about, about five o'clock in the afternoon. We were going to be heading away for the Friday, the Saturday, and then back on the Sunday. And it was from the CO and he... And he said, Alan, that job over in the West, uh, do you still want it? And I said, yeah, absolutely, I want it. And he said, how do I go? And he said, well, they're going to take you. They'll take you over there. And I said, oh, so when do I start? And he said, uh, next Monday. Right. And, and I just took a bit of a breath and thought, Helene was standing beside me. She could hear the conversation that was going on. She, oh, only half of it. And then, so I'd sort of held my hand over the microphone, the phone and said, sorry, darling, I've got to be in Perth on Monday. <laughs> I, and having told the, the boss that I just got to ask my wife. And so I said, yeah. I'll be in Perth on Monday. So we went away for a very quick holiday. And then, yeah. then I headed across on the Monday to start flying jets again. And then when I turned up there, I, I expected to be told, well, you're going to spend about a year here and we'll, we'll assess you on whether you're going to go on to, to F-18s or not. And like the very first day I turned up, they said, right, so your course to go to flying fighters is here and this is what you're going to do and I went oh which was just a, a great surprise to me and the F-18 dream began began yeah. yeah you know it was a one thing that did that no apart from having the decision not to say no just to keep keep saying keep, yes keep saying yes keep chasing it keep wanting it and 
you know, if it hadn't come off then, I don't know what I would have done. You know, at some point, I guess there are people where it hasn't worked for them. There are, there are things in my own life, in my own career that haven't worked for me and I've had to take different paths to do mm. things and ended up with different results. But in this particular case, it, it certainly worked out in my favour. And So I started on the journey to fly fighters and I like to say I was never never the best fighter part in the world, but there's no one better than you. So. <laughs> well, yeah, you don't get a lot of you got to think second chances if you, exactly. if you get it wrong and we're still having a conversation. <laughs> And we're both nearly 60. That's so, it. <laughs> so, yeah. So we moved to Perth and uh, once again, uh, things happened. So I was supposed to go and start my my uh, introductory fighter course, but Helene was pregnant and mm-hmm. that was going to fall right in the middle of the birth of our child, mm-hmm. our first child. So I said, I, I can't. I So I actually said no. I can't go and start my course, which was one of the hardest things mm. that I've had to say, but it was also one of the easiest things mm. I had to say because mm. I, I had to be there for the birth of our child, our first child. But one month after she was born, I was mm. across, Helene was living in Perth, I was living in Newcastle and, and doing the course uh, and starting my, my trip down to, towards fighters, which was, again, turned out, I worked out fine. It, there's, I didn't lose out on anything by making that decision not to start the course. So how soon was it that um, that Helene and, and Rebecca could join you in Newcastle? Well, actually, I, I, after I finished the first three months of the introductory fighter, I went back to Perth. And okay. I, was, I was flying in Perth then for about right. another year. We had an, an incident in the Mackie, unfortunately, where uh, a fellow named Russ Page was killed, where the wing broke off one of the Mackies and ejected and hit the wing as he came out and was killed. And then they grounded all the aeroplanes because they weren't sure exactly. They figured it out. Ultimately, scientists figured out what had actually happened, what went wrong. And so they grounded the aeroplanes for a while. And then when they grounded the aeroplanes, they decided they would have to centralise all those people that had already done their, what they called introductory fighter course. So Helene and I moved again then from Perth across to Newcastle together. Uh, that was in 1992. Mm-hmm. So we uh, end up in Newcastle in the end of 92. When did we first meet? 2002? 2005. Okay, 2005. So there was a there was a fairly long career then in, in the Newcastle area? Yeah, uh, Newcastle and Tyndall. So when I finished my F-18 course, I went to Tyndall uh, in the Northern Territory. Yeah. Catherine. Awesome place to live and work. I really is. I, would, I, would I do it? I would have done it again then. I don't think I'd do it now, but I would have done it again mm. uh, in the military because it was the place was just focused on flying and operating the fighter jets. Mm-hmm. That's what that's the whole purpose of that base. What was there, so it was really good in that sense. So, what's the reach of Tyndall into in the is it Northern Protection Zone of yeah of Australia? Yeah, so we've got a series of bases that spread across the north. So starting at Curtin in Western Australia through Tyndall. Uh, through Gove and then across to Weeper. Mm-hmm. And so all of those, or Sherga near, near Weeper, uh, all, all of those bases are all designed around being able to operate out of, from an Air Force perspective, and defend the northern approaches to Australia. And what would a typical day look like for you in, in that role? So most of the time at work by 7 to 7.15 in the morning, you'd have the morning brief for the squadron, which was, okay, what's the weather for the day? What's the program for today? 
what are the jets, how many have we got serviceable, what are we going to fly. Then you would, uh, over the previous couple of days, you would have been preparing a mission. So that would have taken you know, several hours to prepare that mission. You then brief the mission that you're going to go and fly, and it could be anything from just a one versus one dogfight right through to you know four versus four, or dropping weapons on the range, or and sometimes even a missile shoot, you know, a live missile shoots. But you would then brief that mission, and depending on the complexity of what the mission would be, that could be anything from maybe a, a forty-five minute brief through to maybe an hour and a half uh, brief. You then go and fly the mission come back, debrief the mission. And unfortunately, debriefing the mission is is some of the hardest things you do because mm-hmm. that's that debriefing a mission is not about necessarily covering everything you did right. It's covering everything you did wrong that you've got to fix for next time. Now, it's, it's a bit of both, but you really do have to cover the stuff that didn't go so well. So that, that can take up a good eight hours of your day uh, just for, for one mission. But then there's other parts to your job as an officer within the squadron. You might have a secondary duty that, that helps, you know, whether it's looking after the entire squadron social club or helping with engineering or whatever it might be, you've got all these secondary duties that you have to do. So that then takes up some of your other time as well. And that and you would probably, as, as a young pilot, then we were flying probably four days a week at that point. Overall through the year, it might not sound like a lot, but you would spend somewhere between maybe 180 to 220 hours of actual time in the cockpit. So when you add all the briefing time to that, and then you add all the, the debriefing time to that, and then the travel and the missions, then we'd go to Singapore for, for a month, or you might go to Malaysia for a month. And now you go to um, exercises in Alaska or exercises in the United States. So it takes a fair bit out of you. Out of you. you spend quite a bit of time uh, at work. Mm-hmm. working hard but it's again it's that passion that you have for it and that's where you know Helene had it far more difficult than I ever did you know she was the one that was uh, looking after the family and, and what, going watching and waiting waiting and then mm-hmm. that's that's a lot harder mm-hmm. which is you know the role of a of a service person's life is yeah, to stop yeah. yeah the spouse it's so, sometimes the men as well as yeah is their waiting so we did uh, 24 moves of house in 35 years. And one of those moves was back to Newcastle where you yeah. were running the F-18s? Yeah, so I got to be commanding officer of 77 Squadron yep. uh, here. Out of all of the jobs that I've ever done, I think I've got to think that that was the best. Yep. It's very, very hard to go past the fact that you're an operational squadron commanding officer and we got to do some pretty good stuff. During that time, I'd also... we. We'd upgraded the F-18 with a variety of different weapons and sensors and, and systems on board. And I'd been fortunate enough, one of the jobs I did uh, was actually in Canberra, writing all the paperwork and getting all of that sort of acquired. And then I got to be in the squadron that we actually did all the test and evaluation of it as it arrived. So I was doing that as part of CO77. But to be, you know, 275 people in the squadron and you know, 18 combat jets, uh, and the responsibility of delivering that outcome for the government was uh, was certainly one of the highlights of my career. One of the toughest jobs I've ever done. Not because of the flying, the people. Yeah. You know, working with people and the challenges that each of those have in their own life, in their own mm. career, and being able to motivate them, but also being able to support them to be able to get the best out of them. That's, mm. It's tough. It's, mm. it's not an easy job. Yeah. I've, one of the things I've learned in leadership over the years is, is that you can organise 
uh, events. You, you can org organize uh, programs. You can organize the, the uh, resources that you have around you but you can't organize people all the time. I mean, you, you can you can set organization for people to follow, yeah. but there's so many variants that, that fit within that, that um, yeah. take it from ten, that kind of uh, static style of management where you set in place all these other things to a very dynamic um, experience where you've got to learn how to relate. And, to relate to people. Yeah, and that's not like hurting cats, you know, what people say all the time, but it is very much around being uh, organic and dynamic and and ready and uh, think, aim and adapt i yeah. think you and i spoke in the past about being able to listen mm. yeah, i think it's a really important skill mm. because if you're truly listening to to your people then mm. you can set them up for success mm. now that doesn't mean they get everything they want but mm. it's you've got to be able to listen to them to be able to as a, as i say servant leadership Mm. to be able to deliver for them because if, if they're not going to be behind it they can be your worst enemy if they're not doing it and I and I certainly found that a tough environment because mm. they're so diverse highly talented highly capable people have been in a certain culture for many many years and if you're trying to move them from that at times a very mm. challenging environment but yeah certainly very yeah, a few egos need to be managed and a few, few need to be elevated. <laughs> so. Well, like, what did, what did um, I think it was Greg Norman, one of his leadership points was, mm -hmm. if you can't change your people, change your people. <laughs> That's critical. Yeah, and, and the critical part is the first attempt is to change the people. Yeah. And then there's some people that you can't change. So you, what you can't manage in, you manage out. Yep. And I, the other part that I found was trying to find the, the influences. So leadership is influence. We know Absolutely. That. Yeah. And if, and if you can't, who can, and then influence the influences. Yes. And, and when I could find those and sometimes they're in the strangest places mm. in your squadron mm. uh, or in your unit or, or whatever organization mm. you're in, but and that comes from listening. That comes from talking, getting involved with people, hearing what they've got to say, hearing who they talk about, seeing where the words come back at you, at, mm. you know, and where you've heard those words before. So it takes a lot. You cannot be a leader that sits inside your office, working the paperwork and sending the emails. The only way that you're going to get to know your people is to get out and, mm. and work with them. Mm. And mm. Uh, I always enjoyed even when I was sitting in an office in Canberra, mm. uh, I always enjoyed more getting out of my, rather than pick the phone up and call the person who was, you know, two offices down or four floors away or something mm. like that, is get up, walk down, walk into their office and have a conversation with them and then mm. come back. That's why I always found people. Oh, look, and, and good leadership is so multidimensional. Mm. You know, it's, it's being in front, it's being beside, mm -hmm. it's being behind, mm -hmm. and all those places we need to be, but mostly... We need to to walk the talk before we talk the walk. Yep. We need to be that one who is setting that that example that others can follow, mm. and it's uh, that's a critical part of leadership. And there were times I made wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. um, I, there were I won't talk the specifics of it, but I made a decision based on the fact that this person that I was dealing with, I was one of the people we wanted out of the squad. And so I made some decisions that changed the way we would process that to get it out. Nothing illegal, 
nothing wrong, just a lot faster than what would normally happen. Because now that person was gone. They'd left the Air Force, they were out. Then I had somebody come to me and say, I want to leave the Air Force. And it was one of the best people we had. I didn't want this person to leave. I didn't want them to go. But for him, it was a career change. It was his passion. It was what he wanted to do. And he looked at me and said, can you make it happen fast for me as well? Otherwise, I can't get this job. And I went, oh my goodness. Mm. You know, I've, I've done something for the wrong reasons previously. Mm. I've done it for the expedience of me, for the outcome that I wanted, not for what was good for the overall squadron at the time. Mm. And uh, I had to stand up in front of you know, a variety of people in the squadron predominantly and say, hey, I've made a mistake. I, I did this. The reasons I did it were not based on the values that we live to. They were based on expedience in the way that I wanted something to get and mm. the outcome that I wanted. Therefore, I need to say, look, I've done it there and I've done it here now. I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. That's it. I can't do it anymore. Sometimes we have to live through something before we know yeah. what the full dynamic of that will be. Yeah, and that, mm. that, that stuck with me for a long time whenever I, or throughout now, every decision I make, mm. am I making the decision for the right reasons? Am I making a values-based decision or I'm making it because it's a personal preference and then I've got to be very careful. Mm. I've got to align it and make sure that all the decisions I make are values-based. Yeah. Who are some of the pilots that you've flown with that you really enjoyed? Throughout, if I, if I start early on, it was a couple of the instructors that mm. I flew with uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, one because you know very smart able to to think and provide me the right answers very quickly some because they were just fun to be around uh, then when I was flying in transport airplanes uh, flying with a couple of the senior pilots that had been around a while and just learning from being able to listen but when I got onto f-18s there's which is where I spent the predominance of my career there are people that I, you know, I'm still friends with now, um, Mark Binskin, uh, Paul Simmons, um, highly talented pilots uh, and, and good, great people to mm-hmm. boot on that and just learnt so much from them, not just in flying, but how to conduct yourself uh, in those areas. So there's a couple of, uh, there's a, actually the char- the person, the, the four-star general that's in charge of Air Combat Command now in the US flew with us on exchange over here. And I worked with him when I was the executive officer of OCU, Mark Kelly, nicknamed Grace, wonder why. He was, <laughs> <laughs> he, he was just an exceptional human being and a fan, just awesome pilot as well. Just so flying with them and just how they think about their job, think about their role, that, mm-hmm. that's what I really enjoyed and learnt so much from those sort of people. So now with the leadership experience of F-18 in Newcastle and mm-hmm. and running the, the squadron there, what was the next stage of your career? Where did you develop to next? Well, like, they kept me in Newcastle for a while. I got promoted out of that, and I was then, for a while, the chief of staff of Air Combat Group. So Air Combat Group is the group that looks after all of our fast jets. So at that time, it was F-18s, Hawks, and F-111s. Now it's... Uh, F-18, F, F-18, Growler, and F-35 uh, are the airplanes they look after. And Hawks, sorry. And so I was the chief of staff of that, which was really the person that helped. The commander was running it, and you're the little squirrel running around behind to make sure everything coordinates and links up to make yeah. sure it happens. Uh, which was a great job. Again, you know, you, you, you work with these people that are, are leading those organisations and you learn from them. 
And then I was lucky enough to get put in as the, the commanding, sorry, the officer commanding of number 78 wing, which looked after all of the lead in fighter training. So looked after Hawks and how we teach people to be learned to be fighter pilots. And also it looked after all of the maintenance training. So all of the people that worked on Hawks, F-111s or F-18s were all trained as part of that, that group. So that's where I went there. And, and one of the challenges that, that one of the reasons I went there was uh, it, it is and still is, it is a mix of uh, reserves, mix of full time uh, Australians, British, Americans, uh, all of those people uh, and from a variety of different aircraft types. So it's a melting pot of different cultures mm -hmm. in there. And that's actually a really challenging job to get them to mold together to actually deliver for what the Hawk airplane needs to do and train. Mm -hmm. Because there's a whole bunch of different ideas and you've coalesced them to, to get a single outcome. Because if you don't, you can be pulling against each other mm. and it can actually lead to really big safety problems if that's not working well for you. So I ended up into there and then that point I also deployed to the Middle East to be part of the Combined Air Operations Center in LUD when we had the war in Iraq and Afghanistan that was going on. That whole center ran all of the allied air from, a, from an air force's perspective across northern parts of Africa, up through the Gulf and into Afghanistan. So day to day, we were executing thousands of different flights around the world. So it was to help plan and execute every day to day missions in that. So I did that for, for about five months during that time, which is a seven day a week job for five months. So, so was that the only uh, theatre of war that you were involved in? Uh, no, I guess the only theatre, I don't, but I went twice. I went for two different reasons. I was Initially, uh, when the Iraq war kicked off, I was the chief of staff of uh, the headquarters, one of the slipper headquarters, again, the little squirrel that runs around the line trying to pull it all together. And that was in 2002, and then I later on went back in 2010. So I did two two stints mm. over there. But I, I didn't get to fly an aeroplane over there. I was really working in the headquarters elements. And then uh, after I came back from that, I, I did a safety role for a while, uh, which was another cultural change program. Introduction of the... 2011 legislation uh, workplace health and safety legislation into Air Force that was a huge challenge because that, that again culturally mm, flying a disc is not as fun is it no, no <laughs> the, well I, I, used, I used to joke around we everyone used to call it the mahogany bomber because you're sitting behind the mahogany desk but due to cuts in budget and stuff like that we had the malamine bomber Ford mahogany <laughs> so I did that for for about a year uh, actually about 18 months and then I got selected to go and be the command commandant of the Australian Defence Force Academy having never been to university I got to go and run one so, <laughs> uh, so I, I and that was again just a, a fantastic job right uh, so how many years were you at the the ADF there total in the ADF for 35 years yeah and at the academy yeah uh, at the, at the academy, academy I, I did three years at the academy. three years there yeah so it was in uh, uh, 14, 2014, 15, 16 yeah. were the years that I there. A little ways after Liz Broderick, and who the Sexual Discrimination Commissioner, yes. had done investigation into treatment of women in, in the ADF yeah. and treatment of women at ADFA. Mm. So m one of my responsibilities was the, the implementation of all the recommendations from those reports into how we did business mm. at ADFA at the time. Mm. 
So a challenge. Um, one of the few times I've had a bit of time to think about what you're going to do when you step mm. into a job. I had a few months to think about it and try and put a plan together at that point. Uh, I didn't get to select the team, which was uh, good and bad, because if I'd have selected the team, I probably wouldn't have picked the team that I had, mm. but the team that I had was absolutely brilliant. So they, I, I could not have picked a better team Okay. Uh, in going in there to do that. Yes, it was interesting that the academy there was frequently in the news. It was. And then all of a sudden for three years it disappeared from the news. Yes. And and I knew why. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the difference in how you blend culture and bring culture and, and uh, yeah, there's a, a very much a, a quiet achiever that, that shifted the way the whole place ran. And a lot of it too was in trying to get the young men and women to realize that they are there for a purpose and that purpose is bigger than them. And that's hard when you've got, I know it at 18, 19, that wouldn't have made sense to me. So, you know, trying to get, and I used to, the way I used to say that to them is, I'm trying to take 18 and 19 year olds that are thinking about self and turn them into 22-year-olds that think about service because mm-hmm. they're going to spend four years there. And it's serving others that's important. So it's a constant reminder, a constant drumbeat of just talking to them about, you're an officer. Your role as an officer is others. Mm-hmm. It's not you. Now, while you're here, it's about you. You're getting your degree. You're learning all of these different skills we do. But remembering the only reason you're doing that is so that you can serve others mm-hmm. when you come in there. So... That was the, 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 the premise of the whole thing. So I, I took some time to sit down and, okay, why are they there? Why are we doing it, Adfa? And, and a series of all these why questions that I see that and tried to, to get answers to, but then talk to a bunch of really smart people and say, hey, have I got the answers right? Mm. And, and what's your opinion on this? And I was very fortunate to have a couple of people that worked with us at the time. One person was doing his master's in uh, leadership and and understanding cultural uh, influences and also the influence of your nature and personality on, on how that makes people do business. And another guy who was doing his research on the development, the physical development of the adolescent brain and how that affects learning. And so by combining these two elements of what we had, we were able to come up with a plan that I guess the fundamental shift was we're no longer treating it like an adult education facility and a university. We're treating it like a teenage education facility and an officer training school. So you fundamentally shift the way that people think about their role as whether you're staff or whether you're student and how then they apply what they do. And then I would spend 60% of my time focused on the staff because if I got the staff bit right and understanding, then that would flow down mm. into it. I yeah. still spent a lot of time, the other 40% of my time was about the student and thinking about them and talking to them and, and that sort of thing. But it was, if I can get the staff piece right, then they're the ones that'll be doing the influencing. Yeah, because we lead through people. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You know? And it, it, it's not it's not a one-man band. Mm. It's very much about together everyone achieves more team. You know, it's, it's very much about the higher you climb the ladder of success, the greater the view there is of those you need to serve. Yeah, absolutely. And the, what you're teaching them is to become successful in leadership. That's con- successful in servant heart. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say that I had a three-year plan. I had some big goals that I felt we needed to achieve, uh, but I also felt that the journey was going to be probably a six-year journey and I was only going to be there for three years. And so what I had to do was set them up on a path for I would say in the three years, there were areas that we got further than I thought we would get and there are areas that we got we didn't get anywhere near as far mm. as what I'd hoped we would have gotten mm. in that three years. But the I, the big change to me was what I I felt was we were with with the with what Liz Broderick had brought asked us to do, we were treating women as uh, the in the right way, and we had a system that we'd employed then that would hopefully make sure that that continued. It didn't become personality driven. It became systemic. And some of the things I know people didn't agree with and and, mm. Uh, mm. and and would I, you know, now if I went back, you might do things slightly differently. But at the time, uh, we certainly got some, some success out mm. of that. And I, and I saw the graduation rates of women increase. I saw the quality of their life at that organisation increase. But I'd also say in that what was wrong with that and what, Liz found was happening at the academy is actually what's happening in today's society. If you've seen what's, you know, we've seen in a variety of different businesses now in the mining industry, at other universities, all of those sort of areas, ADFA was the leading edge of what has become a movement through all of Australian society and around the world with the Me Too movements, etc. of actually showing that culturally and society-wise, we haven't got it right. Mm. We, we've been doing it wrong and and we at ADFA were probably just at the, the beginning of all that uh, mm. in 2012, 2013. But what, what an inspiration though. You, I got to go every, I could go every day if I wanted to. It wasn't every day, but you know, a couple of times a week I would go down to the cadets mess where they would have lunch, go and grab a meal, find a table of you know six or seven of these young officer cadets and midshipmen um, male and female and sit down and have a discussion with them and if anybody tells you that the, the, the future of Australia is not bright because of the youth we've got of today then they are 100% wrong they are 10 times smarter than yes. I ever was yeah with our vocational matrix that's one of the things I love I just love sitting with young people who they're fired up oh, yeah. you know and, and there is a little critical nature about entitlement with yeah, millennials yeah. <laughs> and all that'll happen and there probably is a few in that space yeah. But I've more frequently met young people that inspire me and, and encourage me yeah. and and know that I'm handing the baton on to people who, who are fired up about life oh, and, and, and business. You know, I, mm. I have the privilege to coach some outstanding young people. So, so with the academy, I, I always looked also at the academy. was It was training leaders for Australia, not just leaders for yes. the defence. Yeah. If you looked at the number of people 
beyond 10 years after they've left the academy that were still in the military. It's not many. Mm. Right? It, it, I, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it's probably somewhere less than 50% are still in the military at that point. That means we're training leaders for business, we're training leaders for industry, we're training leaders for government, other parts of government. And uh, and that's that's another conversation in, we needed to have all the time with them is the skills that you're taking here, learning here, are completely transferable to, to everything else. Yeah, every every other area of mm. an arena of life. Mm. Yeah. All right. So the next stage was a, a big moment, a big decision. Big decision. And uh, <laughs> t- tell me about that. What was the what was the little uh, phone call that happened, and the <laughs> and the result of that phone call? Well, I, I was sitting there one day, and uh, whenever you get a message that the chief wants to talk to you, it's like this could be good or this could be really bad. <laughs> and you and you get to the point in in your career where. Um, Actually, I should take a step back from that. That was actually my, my second job at Adver, as, a, as a star-ranked officer. My first job as a star-ranked officer was to do the force structure review, which looks at the future force of the entire ADF and then uh, uses that to build the white paper for government. So I was involved. I, I was the person that ran all of the... that actually helped design what that future force would look like in, in 2011. And then I got the phone call out of that, that I was going to go to, I'd actually got told I was going to be the air attache in Washington. You're in the running to be the air attache for Washington. Then it went really quiet. And then they rang me and said, I oh, know you're not going to Washington anymore. You're going to go to ad for it. What did I do wrong? You know, <laughs> anyway, it, it turned out to be just a wonderful job. Uh, but uh, from there, again, getting that phone call from the chief, it's like, this could be it. This could be my phone call that says, I don't have a job on Monday. This mm. is your last job in the military because you get to a point where it's up or out. Mm. And, uh, and so I got, I got this phone call and, and the, the chief at the time, uh, Leo Davies, says, uh, oh, Alan, we, we got you in consideration to be the defense attache in Washington. And I'd sort of heard those words you know, some mm. years before, so I was a little skeptical that mm. it was going to come off. And, I, and he said, I said, oh, okay. Well, this is the, I had this phone call about four years ago and he said he looked at me he not looked at me sorry he spoke and he, you could see the bit of quizzing no you didn't I said yeah I was, I was going to be you know I was rung up about being the air attache some, some time ago he said no 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 not the air attache Alan we're going to promote you to give you a, you know your second star and, and we're going to send you across to be the defence attache to, to run the the whole defence part of uh, the Washington Embassy. So explain to me, unpack that a little bit, but what, what, what does that mean and who do you represent on so, both sides? Yeah, so you end up uh, representing the entire ADF while you're there. You, We have in America, for example, it's our closest ally, we have around 550 military person and defence personnel across 32 different states mm-hmm. in the US. And as the, as the most senior ranking person there, it's your responsibility for the health and well-being of all of those people over there and to make sure that all the jobs that they're doing are the jobs that we need them from a defence perspective to be integrating with the US. Some of them are in training jobs, some of them are being trained, some of them sit within operations, some of them sit within the staff, and some of them do project work in acquisition of different capabilities. So it's just a variety different uh, jobs that they do so that is one half of the job that you do as uh, what they call head of Australian defense staff in in Washington 
The other role is the defense attache. So you are representing the chief of defense force and the secretary of defense at all, at all levels, whether it be to the administration of the government over there or into the Pentagon, into the defense over there, into their intelligence organizations, you are representing the defense element of that in the state. So uh, they turn to you quite regularly to say, well, what would Australia think? You've got to be very careful what you say. <laughs> yes, <'cause laughs> because sometimes your personal opinion might not be what Australia thinks and you've got to represent Australia. Mm. And so I was very fortunate to go there for three years. I worked for Ambassador Hockey at the time. He was the ambassador. Uh, uh, and in my view, did a, an awesome job. Uh, the administration at the time was uh, President Trump. You know, From some of the things we've seen, it was, it was a challenging administration at times to work with. But always very strong for Australia. I could, could not say anything that they didn't uh, support Australia. But it was still a challenging administration because you never quite knew what was going to go. And uh, at times, Twitter became a way of finding out information <laughs> about what was happening. And being able to then represent at the highest levels what our government felt and what our defence senior people felt was certainly a privilege that you don't take lightly. You've got to be very careful of it. But it also meant I met so many different people. I learned so much from whether it was the embassy staff that I worked through foreign affairs and trade or the industry people or the variety of other agencies that were over there. Uh, interaction with you know, 140 different countries, mm. all the defense attaches from those. I Actually, I ended up being what they called Dean of the Attaché Corps. So the US asked me to be Dean of the Attaché Corps over there, which means you're the lead attaché for all of the countries that relates with the US at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was another uh, you know, privilege for me. And But being able to learn from all of those people, I, I realized at times my intuition and over the many years and lifetime that I'd, I'd had in the military, I needed to start trusting my intuition. And, and because at times you, you had to talk now. You had to speak. You couldn't say, look, let me just check. I'll get back to you in a week. Mm. They wanted an answer now. And, and that might be internally within the embassy or it might be externally. And, and there were times you had to be careful what you said. Mm. Uh, but there were times you had to trust your intuition mm. and go with what was right and what you'd learned and and how that played out uh, in your own mind. But did three years of that, would go back in a heartbeat on that job. I did something like 330, 350 engagements over three years, and, you know, virtually every night of the week there was something happening. At times you'd go to a couple of engagements. There'd be times you had weeks where you didn't do stuff, but a lot of the time, you know, and a lot of that was having a speech as well, having to stand up in front of people and here's, here's the Australian view and, and talk about topics that weren't necessarily your field of expertise, but you, you had to very much learn and, and learn from others and, and pull that information together and talk. What's one of your key takeaways from the experience in the, in the US? Australia is very, very good at what we do, but we've got, we have to be humble about how we portray that around the world. We've got to be very careful that we're humble I think the key takeaway personally was to trust my intuition that I, I did have the answer. I was smart enough to be able to answer, to be able to represent Australia and, and to do that. 
Now that didn't mean you get you became rogue and, and, and go out and, and do crazy things, but a lot of what I'd learned over time and a lot of my experiences that I had, they were there and, and I needed to trust in those. And at times you had to stand up and say no or say yes and be able to defend that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and but to be able to trust that. And there were times I had to um, you know, the ambassador would want me to do things or would want us to do stuff and, and you'd have to provide advice to the ambassador and say, ambassador, you know, for these reasons, I don't think we can do that. Or for these reasons, I think we should do this. And you've got to be able to, to trust in yourself to be able to do that. And, and you know, when you could, you know, I had a great relationship with the ambassador. He, you know, but even though sometimes I had to say, sorry, ambassador, I don't think we should do that. Mm. Uh, but you only ever do that behind closed doors mm-hmm. and but having the faith and the trust in yourself and intuition mm. was important I think mm. I mean in these relationships the there's a great book uh, by Stephen M. R. Covey it's called The Speed of Trust mm-hmm. and the, the whole premise of that book is that the trust when you trust someone everything goes very quickly because you've got the character you've got the competence you've got the track record and you know I can trust that decision that person's making because mm. it always is in the best interest. When, when you don't have trust, there's a tax. Mm. You know, there's there's a liability in the relationship, and everything slows down. You know, where there's not that trustworthy connection, you, everything is second guessed. Everything's delayed. Everything is uh, moves into inefficiency and ineffectiveness. Yeah. Simon Sinek talks about the same thing. Yeah, and he did a lot of he he talks quite a bit about military. Mm. He, he's done some research into some military people and talks about trust being mm. the core element mm. of how we do business. An amazing author. Yeah. <laughs> if you get to read anything Simon Sinek's read, it's, yeah. it's valuable to read. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, it's got some great thoughts in there. He, he, he wrote some stuff about uh, when he went and interviewed special forces and asked them why... Sorry, not special forces. He went and interviewed people that had won bravery medals. Mm-hmm. And, and he says, why did you do it? And he said, because I had to do it. Because everyone needed that to happen. Mm. And if I didn't do it, then this is what would happen to them. Mm. So therefore I had to do it. And the trust that that built within the organization mm. by knowing that somebody would do it mm. was mm. enormous. Mm. It's critical because consistency has power. Mm. And when, when someone's consistent and they're reliable and they're trustworthy in those spaces, you just know, well, I want to follow that. Uh, and that's interesting is because somebody said to me through my, when I was flying, Alan, you're not the world's best fire pilot. Hey, I knew that. But you are, what you say you will do, you do. And I can rely on you to be this and do this. And therefore, you may not do this other element as good as some other people do, but I know that when you'll say you're going to do this, this is what you will do. Mm. And he said, that means you can count on that. Mm. And when you mm. can count on something, you can go to war with someone. Absolutely, yeah. When you can count on it, it's just that 100% reliability. Yeah. Mm. So the experience of the US was uh, invaluable to life and and, and shaping next. Shaping next, yes. I, I, I like, jokingly, I say I, I did so well at my job, they sacked me when I got back. <laughs> so, uh, but it's one of those things that, you know, again, in the military, up or out. So I didn't, I didn't get selected to be chief, not that I ever thought I would be, but that meant, that meant the Air Force said, thank you for your service. Uh, it's time for you to leave. And so I 
got what they call a compulsory transfer to the reserve in May of 2020. I wasn't, and that was right in the middle of COVID. So Helene and I got back from the States. We were in lockdown, didn't have a house because we didn't own a house in Canberra where we were living. Uh, I didn't have a job, didn't have an office to go to. Sort of didn't really know what I, I know what I didn't want to do at the time, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Okay. Um, so this was another I decided point. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I decided what I didn't want to do, <laughs> not I decided what I wanted to do. We were, it was actually a bit of a tough transition for us, m- mainly because of the physical pieces. Not right from the time I first got promoted, uh, I'd always envisioned that I, I was not going to be chief, and that at some point I was going to leave. And so you've got yourself in a mental preparation for that all mm-hmm. the way through. So I was mentally prepared for it, but not necessarily all of the all of the physical organization pieces to, yeah, to yeah. make it actually work for me. But having been in the US and seen so many brilliant uh, businesses come through, research people, people who developed some, something, whether it was a software element or a hardware element or something, they developed these fantastic, exquisite capabilities. And and then struggled to understand how they could make that work in the US or how do they get into a US business type of things. And having a little bit of experience and then some connections, I said, well, actually what I really would like to do is help Australian businesses. You know, I've got a wealth of experience from defense, so I know what defense is looking for. I, I, I can see when I look at a capability, how it might play out in combat and how, how we might actually use that. I also now have an experience of, of a US system and understanding a little bit about how their government circles work and how their state works and, and how defense industry works over there. So I, I thought I would uh, hang up a shingle and become a consultant. And so I started doing that. And I was very fortunate. Uh, Joe Hockey rang me up after he'd finished as ambassador and said, oh, look, I've started a company. Would you like to come on as an advisor for me? Which was fantastic because you know, the connections that, that Joe has and what you learn from those connections is just amazing. And so I was very fortunate that I got approached by a couple of other companies that I'd met, I'd seen and said, look, would you come on? And some of them I was getting paid for and some of them I wasn't. And and I was working for a U- University of Canberra as well, giving them some advice on, on a variety of different things. And so I, I had this portfolio of just little companies that I was, and, and state organizations, I was working for the Defence SA as well on their board. I was working for Downer on, on their board, advisory board, not their full uh, fiduciary board. And so I was just learning a lot. I was really, and I was enjoying it. I was having fun. And, but what I didn't really want to do was become a business development person that had to go and knock on doors and sell equipment. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't mind being part of an organization that had people that did that, but I didn't want to be the person I didn't want to, because I'd seen so many come through. I, I mm. didn't want to do that as a job. Not that it's bad, I just wasn't me. And then I was very fortunate uh, that a company called L3 Harrison, who I had a little bit of dealings with in the US, as I had with all of the companies, the big companies in the US, uh, their Australian country executive was retiring after 14 years of being in the job. And he rang me up one day and said, hey, Alan, um, your name has, has come up as somebody who might be interested in being part of this company. And and I knew the company reasonably well from their time. It's a technology company. It, 
it does exquisite senses and communications and areas and it, it doesn't necessarily build platforms like aircraft and ships and tanks and stuff but it, it puts all of the stuff in right I, I say if you think about the aircraft as the puppet then L3 Harris is the hand inside the puppet that actually makes it work okay. that's the way to think about it so they approached me I I thought I'd be interested and then I had a bunch of interviews about five interviews to go through that which is something really new for me after 35 years in the military of never being interviewed for a job once in that entire time, but having a multitude of jobs over. So I had to, did a lot of research on how to do interviews and, and that thing. And, and then fortunate enough, they offered me the job as their country exec. And so now I'm, in Australian terms, they call it the managing director of L3 Harris Technologies Australia. In a US term, it's called the vice president of Australian operations or something. But uh, basically what it is, is I, I represent the company here to government and to defence uh, on what we can as a company do to build cap- capability and capacity for the Australian Defence Force. And what's the, what's the major differences you're finding in private industry, in, in, in enterprise, in business mm. there, compared to working just where it's government and it's mm. in that space there? What, what, what freedoms, what restrictions, what dynamics are you experiencing in that now personally i'm finding that the leadership of people is the same so i i i don't find interacting and and working with people any different Um, what i do find is what motivates the company as a company is different and that has been at times a challenge i think not not only for me but for other military people that get out and come into business to transition to our focus in the military is delivery of a capability and an outcome whether it's getting operating your fighter at the right place having the ship do what it needs to do having the the infantry do it it, it's actually about delivery of a combat outcome is why you're there that flips when you're in business it can't be just about that because if the company's not making money then you're not actually delivering the capability that you need to deliver yes so understanding how that works within a company has been a challenge, particularly understanding how it works in a, because it's a large US company that I work for, how that works from a US perspective and then the relationship that they see Australia into that company. It's, it's been quite challenging to be able to convince them and talk to them about the way Australia does business. Yeah, I guess you, you represent Australia and this region, but essentially, you know, when we're, yeah, a little over 25 million people and we're, we're talking about a th- 300 plus million. 330 million. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, there's quite a dynamic difference between those two. We, I, I don't think there's as many people in, in Australia as there is in New York City. No, well, the, one of the, the descriptions I used to use when I was in the US was we have the GDP and population of Texas with the landmass of continental US. <laughs> yeah. That's the way to think about us. Yeah. Um, probably a little more center than than where texas is politically yes (laughs) but i so that has been a challenge for me and it has been uh, more of a challenge than i I thought it would be because big companies have big bureaucracy Mm. and they are a super tanker Mm. traveling along Mm. and it takes you know everyone says oh it only takes a degree movement on the rudder to move a super tanker yeah but it takes a year to get it to turn yeah takes a long time to yeah. get that thing to turn. So I, I find at times that there is a frustration about things. 
But I also find at times it's just so joyful because I, I can see a good outcome for the Australian Defence Force or the Australian Government or whatever we are doing. And I, what I like to think I bring to it is I don't lose the idea of the military outcome, the defence outcome. I, I still have that in mind. And that I can represent that to the company in a way that maybe somebody who doesn't have my background can can do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, but I, it wasn't an easy decision for me to go to the company. I... I'm fortunate to have a few mentors around and, and, and although she probably doesn't realise it, um, oh, I've spoken to a bit, uh, there's a lady named Kate Lundy who, who was a, a politician at one time, but she's a, a wonderful advocate and a really, really smart person. And I, I was chatting with her one day. I was, on the, I was on the downer advisory board with her and, and one day I just said to her, look, I've got this offer and I'm just not sure. Mm. So we went for this really long walk one day, about 30 minutes, uh, was out, actually out at a little town called Tomorrow. Yes. An air show out at Tomorrow. And yes. I said, okay, can we just have a chat? And so we went for a walk. And I just pitched to her. I thought, I've, I fear I'm selling out. I fear I'm not representing what I said I wanted to do. But it's attractive because I feel if I learn more about that company and how, <clears throat> excuse me, how US companies work in more detail then I can actually represent Australia a lot better and I can... And so it was one of those long conversations we had around and then if it wasn't for that conversation, I probably would still be doing the consultancy here mm. and I ended up taking the job. So yeah, I decided at that time that it was uh, it was going to be right. I could actually mm. uh, could actually stick true to what my values were, mm. you know, going right back to making decisions on values. Mm. Um, stick to what my values were and, and work for a big US company but still be able to represent Australia in a way that it needs to be represented. Yeah. Well, most definitely, the, sto- <coughs> the story hasn't finished yet. No. There's still plenty of, of Alan Clement's life in leadership and in business and in growth and development. And, mm. But there will be one day when your life is reduced to a sentence, maybe a paragraph. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and uh, and that, that happens, you know, to all of us at one stage. Yeah. What would you like that sentence or paragraph to say? That's a great question. That's almost like, what do I write on my tombstone? (laughs) So I guess there's a couple of things. The first thing I'd like it to say is he cared about others. Mm -hmm. And I I think the next thing you'd like is he did his best. Mm -hmm. So I think, I, I, I can't think of much more than that at the moment, but if you care about others and you do your best, then I think it starts to fall into place mm. Mm. from there. Well, that's definitely been the briefest one that I've had. Most people want a paragraph that's about 80 sentences long. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, like, like most of your life that I've watched, Alan, you say what needs to be said and you live a life that's incredibly authentic and very true to who you are, who you want to be, and who you want to reflect. And it's it's been fun to know you uh, just for these last 15, 17 years. Mm-hmm. As we've kind of journeyed through life, every, every opportunity that I've watched about you has been very much about living so authentic that it does impress other people. 
And that seems to be a core that's taking you through lots of leadership roles. And you live your life right now to do that. So I'm sure that's what will be said about you, that you live to serve. And I thank you so much for the service that you've given to our country and to to represent Australia in such a professional, amazing way. And each place that you've been to across your career, you've you've left a legacy that's made a difference in the moment and a difference then and beyond that moment. And you've taken uh, a place sometimes out of turmoil and turned it around to to be able to have a new paradigm of thinking, a new, a new platform to work from, and a new uh, focus for the future. And you continue to do that. So I'm sure the role that you're in now will be one where it helps this company refocus for the future in a way that achieves the, the goals you have in your heart as well as the objectives of the company to work connected and profitably into the future. So, yeah, so thank you. Thank you for the way you've served us. As, as Australian, pretty amazing, mate. So thank you. It's yeah. been I've loved every part of what I've been able to do. It's been an absolute honour and privilege to be part of the Defence Force for so long. Mm. And thank you for writing my paragraph. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't have done any better. <laughs> well, you definitely have planned a life you want to live in, mm. and that's what I just encourage people all the time to do: is don't live somebody else's life. No. Plan a life you want to live in. Absolutely. It's been it's been great. Been great to catch up. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Catch up again sometime. Yeah, yeah. And and we won't leave it so long between between catch ups. Sounds great. Thanks, Ian. I've enjoyed the time.